In our previous episode, we talked about the connection between culture, policy, and economic development. In this episode, we dig deep on community and how diverse business pipelines from underrepresented founders and communities contribute to wealth creation. So we talk about life goals. Let's talk about business goals for ESOs, our entrepreneurial support organizations. Help shape, then help develop resilient policies. It's resilient policies that have the potential to support a multitude of communities and ultimately drive wealth creation in a sustainable way. Why Atlanta welcomes Latresa McLawhorn Ryan to our conversation on entrepreneurship and the wealth gap. Previously founding executive director of the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative and now CEO of the Blackbird Strategy Group, Latresa is a national trendsetter on strategic partnerships that close the racial wealth gap. Let me share a little about Latresa's background. With a personal purpose and career focused on creating economic security and sustainable generational wealth, she has more than 20 years of experience as a trusted advisor with a unique ability to make complex ideas compelling by combining critical thinking with practical implementation. Under her leadership, the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative developed as an ecosystem hub serving as a think tank, data engine, community convener, funder, and philanthropic and community development advisor, launching its signature Advancing Enterprise Prosperity 1,000 Black Businesses in 1,000 Days campaign to empower businesses with assets and tools to grow and scale while paying employees a living wage. Before joining the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative, Latresa held leadership roles at SunTrust Bank, where she was a vice president with the Foundations and Endowment Specialty Practice, and with Operation Hope, where she was director of the Office of Partnerships and global vice president of Strategic Partnerships and Development. Latresa serves as board member and former chair of the Grove Park Foundation, a board member for the Atlanta Beltline Partnership, Center for Civic Innovation, and Georgia Social Impact Collaborative, as well as a member of the Greenlight Fund Advisory Council, Emory University Board of Visitors, and the Children's School Board of Trustees. Latresa has also served as a participant in the Aspen Institute Germany's Transatlantic Town Hall Project, Future Cities Equity and Practice Advisor for New Growth Innovation Network, State of CDFIs in Georgia Conference Task Force, Race and Equity and Philanthropic Group, and as a graduate of the Boston Impact Initiative Social Impact Fund Building Cohort. She has spoken at various events hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Aspen Institute Germany, SOCAP Spectrum, Georgia Social Impact Collaborative, Google for Startups, and Goody Nation's Black Founders Fund, as well as the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, Manatee Community Foundation, the Southeastern Council for Foundations, and the United Way of Greater Atlanta. Miss Ryan has also been featured in media publications like the Atlanta Business Chronicle, Bloomberg News, NPR, Rolling Out, Global Heroes Magazine, and Open Democracy. Latresa received her BS in computer science from Spelman College, those Spelman girls, and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina School of Law. 
I think when we're talking about entrepreneurship, it's important for us to talk about driving business and entrepreneurship in your purpose. And the fact that to do volunteer work, it's something that you care about. But if you lead with your purpose, you're going to create a lot of opportunity, a lot of hopefully wealth and capital for people. But it has to start with that because this work is is community work. I don't think that people come to it thinking, oh, I'm going to be a billionaire the next day. Well, first of all, I'm so fortunate and it's such a blessing to wake up every day knowing that I am walking my God-given purpose and I get to do it every day. And that has been a real driving force for sure. I think what I do particularly share with younger people or people earlier in their career in particular, or just those that are interested in making a shift in their career, it starts with service and a heart to serve. And through service, particularly through volunteer work, you have an opportunity to not only explore your interests and help the community, but you have an opportunity to really dive into your purpose and explore where you best spend and in what way you can have impact. And it's a great opportunity to then kind of exercise those gifts in a way that can lead you to a path to, to that being what you do full time. And I think if it can happen with me, I mean, I, I have a computer science degree uh, to say what I was at Spelman that I would end up doing this work. I had no idea, but it's really what you're driven by and what your interests are is where your purpose lies. And there are lots of avenues to get to be in a position to do it every day. I'm really curious about your thoughts on how Atlanta got to this place where we've got this dubious distinction of having its really large wealth gap. I wish I had a crystal ball to go back to dig deep, but my work in general really focuses on root causes. So first of all, the disparities in wealth particularly for the Black community, is not unique to Atlanta, for sure. However, I think what is unique about Atlanta is it is a very powerful ecosystem in terms of economic growth. And so as, as the city has really, as we've come together to really focus on making sure that Atlanta is a thriving economic engine in the world, really, and putting measures in place to ensure that it happens, there the gap has increased. For example, the median household income for a Black family in Atlanta is about $28,000 compared to about $84,000 for a white family. That compares nationally where the median household income for a Black family is about $42,000 compared to $65,000 for a white family. So if you're white in Atlanta, you are doing amazingly well compared to national counterparts. And if you're Black in Atlanta, you are not. You're much below the median. And I think that there are a few reasons, of course. And I think this is an important distinction when people start talking about the growth of the economy overall, the growth of opportunity overall, because all that does is widen the gap unless you are intentional about creating reparative solutions that are unique and specific to the Black community, because there are historical and structural policies that have been put in place that have limited Black people's ability to build wealth, to own assets, to leverage those assets, to grow and build sustainable wealth and generational wealth. And so when you're not intentional and you take the standpoint that rising tide raises all boats, it does not. If if one person has a hole in their boat, (laughs) the rising tide is not going to do much for them at all. And so there has to be a reparative practice in place to do that. And I think Atlanta is just an example of that. And as a result, we have this huge gap 
in income and economic mobility that is unique because we are such a thriving community. We have over 30 Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies. We are an international engine in the economy. We have companies coming here every day wanting to add to the job market and the economy overall, but we don't have the same level of intention to create solutions that can build wealth and share prosperity for everyone and more specifically for historically excluded groups. What role does entrepreneurship play there? No, it's a great question because there's a debate and people often like to state entrepreneurship alone is not going to close the racial wealth gap. It absolutely is not. We're dealing with generations of of intentional acts <laughs> that have created this disparity. One solution is not going to solve it in any way whatsoever. It has to be a combination of solutions that are deployed at the same time among a wide variety of stakeholders, community, nonprofits, government, quasi-government, corporations, multiple levels of the government, just a wide variety. We all have to work together at the same time with intention towards this goal. And so entrepreneurship comes in is because it is a, an amazing economic driver in our country. It is an economic driver in our country. Small businesses, and I don't want to misquote, the Federal Reserve had a report two years ago where I believe 92% of the jobs in America were created by small businesses. It is. It's actually yes. 97%. 97%. It's 97%. Yes, created by small businesses. So that in of itself confirms that entrepreneurship is the key in how we navigate this system. However, one, it has to be done in an equitable way and access to entrepreneurship has to be developed in an equitable way. But entrepreneurs, in addition to creating wealth for themselves and their family, it also creates wealth and opportunity for their employees in a way that a lot of other solutions simply do not. And we're just talking about the Black community in particular. There's data that indicates that Black entrepreneurs tend to also hire other Black employees, which then impacts that Black community, but also they tend to give back to their communities. They tend to be leaders and good stewards of their of the Black community. And so it goes beyond revenue and a paycheck. It really goes into building a healthier community as a result of the impact of entrepreneurship. Do you think entrepreneurs can act as a glue between the community and the policy because entrepreneurship is such a part of economic development? Do entrepreneurs have leverage in that space where they can advocate for policy as a part of the economic formula and then advocate for the community because they're in the community? That's a wonderful question, too, because Atlanta has the honor and distinction to have had Mayor Maynard Jackson as one of our mayors. And often people, we talk about him locally a lot. But as I talk to others around the country, when they talk about their modeling over the last 30 to 50 years, they also lean back to policies that he put into place to support Black entrepreneurship in the city. And those efforts are what helped Atlanta be known as a Black Mecca, what helped really grow a strong portion of this economy going forward. And I think policies in that respect, both from our policymakers and leaders, but also in collaboration with our entrepreneurs could create pathways to building wealth and not just financial assets, but an opportunity to give employees a more equitable stake in the economy 
to ensure they have wages and support overall, whether it range from childcare support, which we learned during the pandemic is absolutely critical for our economy to grow, to what educational opportunities are available because we need to build a strong workforce here locally. Our businesses are going to thrive and be competitive compared to other markets. So I think that entrepreneurs can play a part in helping inform strong policy that can help build the community overall. Yeah, I tell people I'm a Maynard baby. I remember Mm. being five years old and business owners around me in my community. Everybody had a, the doctors also had a business, a second business, like the teachers, it was a night, it was an incredible community. And I remember at that age, people talking about Mayor Jackson putting policy in place just for procurement and giving them access to that market. So they could put back into their community. I remember being a kid and being like, oh, yeah, I have to spend my money at a Black-owned business because it comes back to my community. And you're five in that. That's a foundational principle. But I think it also highlights this thing about it, Atlanta that if we just dig a little deeper, it also has this thriving Black middle class, right? That was generated by the eight Russells of the world or the airport concessions. But there's still a gap between that middle class that's in the suburbs and maybe the boats that have holes in them in the city of Atlanta. So here's the thing there. The wonderful thing about Atlanta is that we want to be known as a black Becca. We are far ahead of other cities because at least we have that desire. But though, as those policies shifted away from what he developed, so did really our middle class and our overall economy as it relates to Black people here. And I've been doing a lot of research trying to pinpoint when did that shift start to happen? I'm still working through that. But I think what I've been able to distinguish is it seemed to start happening around the Olympics or in preparation for the Olympics and Mm -hmm. ensuring that Atlanta was seen as the wonderful international city that it is and bringing broader opportunities to the city and almost taking for granted that Black middle class or that Black people in general, regardless of income level, we're going to continue to thrive here because we're Atlanta. And there stopped being that intentionality around the broader Black community, ensuring that there were opportunities to thrive and grow. And when you combine that with, as you mentioned, people moving outside the city, urban sprawl and, and those sorts of things, it, that just continues to grow. So less opportunity and then people either now being displaced, quite frankly, because they can't afford to live in a city or intentionally moving away, shifted our communities in that holistic nature. Like you said, you grew up off Fabham Road and there were teachers and doctors and business owners that you grew up with. I remember being here. So I came to Atlanta to attend Spelman. I'm also not a gravy baby. I'm from rural Eastern North Carolina. But I remember through some a nonprofit I started, but some work in the community, just how strong communities were like Cascade and yeah. uh, those types of communities and the wide variety of people who lived in those communities. But quite frankly, for example, at the time, Bayes was kind of among the students that we brought into our program always had exceptional students and those mm-hmm. that's a public school that had to teach all the kids who attended there. But there was also just this really rich, supportive community as well with a wide variety of people who lived there. And I think that creates a healthy ecosystem at the same time. But I think that as we take for granted that everyone is going to continue to have a fair and equitable access, or we take for granted that uh, because we are Atlanta, because this is our culture, that somehow culture equates to actual opportunity 
um, for everyone, right? Everyone. We know there are people here who are doing well. It's a great city to live in, but there's not enough focus and attention and awareness brought around what is actually happening for all of the residents here. Well, it certainly is an argument for intentional policy that is sustainable, right? You can't have pockets of policy. You can't do it for a term and think it's going to last for the continuity of impact. That policy has to be community centered. It has to start with the community and asking them what they think needs to be shifted and changed or what will be most impactful for them. I think Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative does a great job of making sure the community is a central focus of any work that is built out, that community was a center of even development organization, period. And I think that's an important model because community-centered design is more sustainable because you have a broader set of stakeholders who are engaged at every level of your ecosystem. You have information from a broader range of people and you also, in that process, get more of your residents and leaders to buy in to ensuring that there's success in that policy as it moves forward. And so I think that's an important thing for us all to remember when we think about creating sustainable solutions. I'm really excited to bring in the next part of our conversation with the incomparable Dahl Avant, founder and CEO of Aquagenuity. Often referenced as Google's woman of water and a fierce advocate for ownership and silver rights through entrepreneurship. Her purpose is to ensure that all communities worldwide have access to clean water. Dahl is a proud graduate of Frederick Douglass High School here in Atlanta, Georgia, and an award-winning inventor, data scientist, graduate of Harvard University, as well as a TEDx speaker. She's an internationally recognized expert on water quality, sustainability, climate change, and environmental justice. Dahl has raised over $50 million from SoftBank, Google, and Amazon, and has been featured by Forbes, The New York Times, and Wired Magazine. Dahl is the creator of Guardians of H2O, an international STEM initiative that teaches everyday citizens how to become protectors of the planet. She serves on the board of the Captain Planet Foundation, and she was named a Global Impact Fellow by Singularity at NASA's Research Park in Silicon Valley. Dahl has also received awards for entrepreneurship and technology innovation from J.P. Morgan, Coca-Cola, BMW, and Ocean Visions, a collaborative of MIT, Stanford, Georgia Tech, Georgia Aquarium, the Smithsonian, and the United Nations. Dahl Avant graduated with honors from Harvard University, where she studied Afro-American history with a focus on economics. She's also studied data analytics at the Harvard Business School and has a micro-master's in statistics and data science from MIT. Here we explore the concept of entrepreneurship as 21st century activism. Are women better at activism through entrepreneurship? Are, how are we referring to it these days, social entrepreneurship than our male counterparts because of how we leverage purpose in our business models? Dahl and I challenge the idea of whether social entrepreneurs even know that they're activists. We pick up on the conversation with Latresa where we were examining how community is a critical anchor to any successful economic development plan and how female founders like Dahl advocating for silver rights is a real-life example of community-centered solutions closing the wealth gap. 
always love when you talk about entrepreneurship as 21st century activism. And I think you talk about it with such passion and such just passion. Talk, talk to me about that. When you say that, do you mean activism in politics or activism in the community or economic development? Yes. So both. One of the privileges of being able to do this work, I've been mentored by some amazing people and Ambassador Andrew Young is just one of our close personal advisors and mentors in this work. He obviously walked with Dr. King, but just that whole spirit of the legacy of civil rights movement. And we think about marches and you see the black and white photos and all of that. And that was activism for that time. When I say entrepreneurship as 21st century activism, you think about what is the point of all the movements? What's the point of all the marching? We really just want a world where there's real equality, real equity, real equal access to opportunity. And that has to include not just what neighborhood am I allowed to live in, but what are the systemic barriers to me earning enough money to be able to afford the house in whatever neighborhood I want to live in? And then what we do specifically at Aquagenuity, we're dealing with these environmental factors that are affecting people at such a young age, before the age of six. If you look at things like lead, exposure to lead as a young child, first of all, the health effects are irreversible, but it also it disrupts brain development, right? It's a neurotoxin. So when you have something affecting a child's brain before they're even seven, eight years old, they're going to get poor educational outcomes. They're going to get poor employment outcomes. They're not going to earn as much money in their lifetime. The health outcomes, high blood pressure and all types of health outcomes that are linked to lead. These are studies that have been done globally. Alzheimer's and dementia in older age is actually shortening lifespans by 10 to 15 years in black and brown communities, just exposure to environmental pollution through the air and water. Lead specifically has been linked in global studies to aggressive behavior, increased likelihood to be arrested, violent behavior. And we're thinking, oh, we're labeling people when really it's the environment that they're forced to live in that's causing all of these life outcomes. So when I say entrepreneurship is 21st century activism, whether you have a business that's doing the work that we're doing and trying to solve some of these systemic factors that lead to these life outcomes or any business, the fact of a Black founder running a business that is successful, only 4% of Black businesses actually hire out external employees. If my business succeeds, we just achieved a billion dollar valuation, by the way, that's we haven't even announced. Oh, it's what's because our contract But now we flowers. Now we are stable. Now we hiring people that makes all of those families stable. If you continue to do that, now you have a whole community that's stable. When you see a company like a Google or Apple or Amazon or anything, they create an ecosystem that stabilizes that entire community. If you start to do that and have successful uh, Black entrepreneurs, that's how you shift society. So that's what I mean when I say entrepreneurship is 21st century activism, because everybody knows it's wrong. Marching in the street is like, hey, it's wrong. You're like You're appealing to humanity. But when you have successful entrepreneurs, you're actually triggering the economic impacts that can move a whole community forward. And then you put policies in place to help protect that prosperity once you build the economic engine. I think you've heard me say this. I think that the world would be in a much better place if there were more women in leadership positions. 100%. And it is why I'm passionate about this work. I feel that we are part of a solution. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. So, I mean, that leads to one of my other questions is, come on, honestly, doll, you know, entrepreneurship is not 
dominated by women. Business is not dominated by women, not yet. So Mm -hmm. isn't it more likely that successful entrepreneurs just going to contribute to the top 1% and kind of for the money? Is that really as entrepreneurship as a vehicle in 2022, really contributing to this economic development and this 21st century activism that you speak so, so well? Yeah, there's two ways to think about that. One is just the level of success that we've grown accustomed to celebrating only because there are Googles and IBMs and Microsofts and all of that in the world. That's why all these other businesses that make $800,000 a year and $500,000 a year can exist. It's because these big engines are driving all of us and our economy forward. So if you were to create that for female entrepreneurs or black entrepreneurs and have more of them achieving success at a higher level, You're going to get that effect down at the businesses that have revenue, if you will, at a lower level. And so I think when you have companies that are achieving seven-figure, eight-figure success, then you get a different type of tax base. Like I said, they're hiring more people in different communities that would not have gotten that boost from that kind of success. And the other way to look at it is we have to be more intentional as conscious entrepreneurs, if you will. We have to be more intentional about making sure that, okay, we made success we, you made a company that's successful, but not just so I can move to my favorite neighborhood, but also so I can start to create systems and programs that begin to uplift communities in perpetuity. And so even like athletes or musicians and folks like that, like there can be a purposeful and perpetual approach to, okay, when I make it, I'm going to go back and make sure my community, my school that I went to they have access to the same opportunities. If everybody does that, then that's how we can lift all communities instead of it just being, hey, I bought a big house in Buckhead. So how do you think that translates or plays into this wealth gap that we still see? I know that we we have a fantastic Black middle class. I know people come from around the world, Black folks, and they're like, yes. oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. This yes. is great. And it is. It is very special, but there's still this wealth gap. And uh, do you think entrepreneurship can really fill it? I do. I think that we're missing one piece and that's the intentionality. Like I said, since the civil rights days before we were born and then moving into our era, we were raised, like all of us still, people are raised, you go to school, you get, you go to college, you get a job or you start your career, you go to the military, whatever you're doing. And then you go out here, you get your money, get your house, get it together, take care of your family. The end. That's what we're taught. But what we need is as we continue to win in these entrepreneurial streets, as I said, and we start doing better and better, your seven figure founders out here, eight figure deals are getting done and all of this amazing activity. We just have to connect that back to a system that's designed to support communities in perpetuity. And it's not necessarily the nonprofit model. Most people don't know the nonprofit model was invented by the Rockefellers and all the richer families of that, the past century, but it's really designed to be a tax write off. It's okay, I'm going to go do what I do and then I'll give some money and then I get a tax write-off. The benefits to the community should be attached to the engine that's driving the prosperity. So a great example would be, what if instead of just having the percentage of contracts, let's say for the airport or any other kind of engine like that, what if 1% or half a percent of revenue was tied back to Atlanta public school system? Let's make sure that they're funded in a way that makes that would make them automatically the greatest school system in the country. You know right. what I mean? So certain things like that could just be built in. And so you see things like the 1% pledge from companies, right? Now they're going to pledge 1% of their revenue and things like that to, to support social impact. 
But especially for folks who are from these out groups, we can do that ourselves. People are starting benefit corporations and things like that. But the more intentional you can be about significant success. Okay, I got a lifestyle business. I'm doing well. But what if I scale? What if I... Right. Each more customers, I have more revenue, I can have more impact. I think the intentionality is what can start to shift that narrative. The Silver Rights Movement is focused on an inclusive policy aimed at empowering the wealthless of America, wherever they are, be they black, white, brown or yellow. The civil rights movement believes that the ultimate answer to eradicating poverty right here in America lies in an active, proactive, and coordinated three-legged stool partnership by and between the private sector, the public sector, and the community, ultimately converting small business dreamers into small business owners. So it's fitting in this conversation that we elevate the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs, or RISE, where Dahl is an entrepreneur in residence, standing on the shoulders of one of Atlanta's most significant and influential entrepreneurs, Herman J. Russell. The 50,000 square foot complex of convening, meeting, and innovation space the Russell Center is a manifestation of what success looks like when community drives entrepreneurship. Why Atlanta rounds out the conversation with one of Atlanta's most exceptional and preeminent leaders, Jay Bailey, president and CEO of the Russell Center. He's an entrepreneur, a civic leader, and yet another product of the Atlanta public school system. Oh yeah, and a diehard University of Georgia Bulldog graduate. Committed to living by his personal motto, build as we climb. Jay is a change agent, thought leader, and emerging philanthropist dedicating his life to serving others. Bailey previously served as CEO for the Southeastern region of Operation Hope, a global nonprofit organization focused on financial literacy. Jay has more than a decade of senior leadership experience in the nonprofit and economic empowerment space and has also founded one of the nation's most innovative private equity firms, Greenwood Archer, dedicated to reimagining the way America's most underserved communities leverage assets, establish wealth, strengthen infrastructure, and create jobs. Before Greenwood Archer, as CEO for the Southeastern Region of Operation Hope, Bailey grew the Southeastern Region from a single-person operation in 2007 to 19 offices by 2015, helping more than 160,000 youth, adults, and families start businesses, buy homes, raise credit scores, and increase their financial dignity. Bailey has a proven track record of success, recognized by three U.S. presidents for his leadership and community efforts, and was one of eight Americans honored at the White House in 2012 as a champion of change, following in the footsteps of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was also named to both the Atlanta Business Chronicle and Georgia Trend Magazine's 40 Under 40 Best and Brightest Leaders of the Future. Bailey is a graduate of Leadership Atlanta, Leadership Georgia, and the ARC Regional Leadership Institute. I'm so excited to welcome Jay Bailey to this conversation as he provides an incredible North Star for entrepreneurial ecosystems worldwide, right here from Atlanta, a system and systems that support diverse communities, unapologetically Black communities, in order to close this persistent wealth gap. 
And in the end, it's for the benefit and success of the entire community. Oh, but to fail and to fly. One of the biggest themes in this conversation. Jay and I chop it up on one of the most challenging mindsets for BIPOC entrepreneurs to get comfortable with, getting happy with failure in order to succeed. Sometimes we get in our own way because we're defining success and failure using another person's definition. Success and failure is how you define it. The beauty of this conversation with Jay is that it illuminates how the Russell Center and by extension the city of Atlanta are places that give agency to underrepresented entrepreneurs so that they have the space to redefine exactly what success looks like for them. We're a bit of a startup unicorn story. A little over three and a half years, certainly under four years, that I was hired to dream up what this space could be. For everybody tuning in, check us out, russellcenter.org, 504 Fair Street. We're building the largest center in the world dedicated to growing, stealing, and developing Black entrepreneurs in honor of one of the, questionably, the most prolific entrepreneurs Atlanta's ever produced. Our model, we're trying to push against kind of the typical incubator accelerator model, which have worked in many ways, but they haven't done a very good job in being very diverse or inclusive. Our model is rooted in community culture covenant, wrapped around a world-class curriculum, really focusing on access and readiness. This is a place where we needed to create a safe space for Black entrepreneurs to fail and fly, to have the conversation that's needed, to be vulnerable enough to learn and vulnerable enough to build authentic relationships because I honestly believe we lose GDP every year because the brilliant ideas that reside on the south side of the tracks of every city in America never reach the marketplace because they don't believe they belong. And how can we create the space of deep belonging focused on the whole entrepreneur, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, the separation, the self-esteem, the self-confidence, the belief that's necessary to grow any kind of successful enterprise. And right now we support about 200 entrepreneurs full time about 4,000 in our network. We continue to build out our 54,000 square foot facility that we'll be adding additional square feet to. And in just three years, we've been able to raise a little more $42 million to help make this happen. And our goal is to raise another 40 to see that we have a space that allows this side of the community to see value in their own reflection. We don't have to go anywhere outside of our community to feel whole and to feel worthy. But most of all, I'm going to triple down on belonging. Business moves at the speed of relationships. And if I can't be vulnerable and I'm always guarded and I'm always armored up and I'm always trying to present as this perfect individual, I'm never going to raise my hand to say I need help. I'm never going to raise my hand to say I don't know. I'm never going to raise my hand to say, could you kind of, could you restate that again? Because if I appear incompetent, that means everybody that looks like me, you're going to perceive as incompetent. And so, yeah, if I can't be vulnerable, I can't learn. If I can't be vulnerable, I can't build authentic relationships. And those authentic relationships, I don't care what incubator, accelerator, what leadership program you go through, what training and development you go through, all of them say the same thing. Relationships matter. And the thing that you take away from me, the Russell Center or WEI or anything else, it's going to be those relationships that allow you actually to thrive. But if you've never met me, Monica, because I'm always presenting this perfect self, you and I won't go much deeper than the surface any at any point during our relationship. And so to give Black entrepreneurs this solid earth, this very strong foundation, to feel like this is our space and our place, I can show up as my whole authentic, true self, and I can build from there. 
is critical. Again, we need less symbols of hope. We need institutions that can literally manufacture hope at scale. And we hope to be one of those institutions by providing that safe space to fail and fly, to understand that everything ain't going to be perfect. For your business or your company to thrive, you got to go through some tough areas. It's not all going to work out in that beautiful straight line going up. There are going to be all kind of curves, twists, and everything else. And to not be afraid of that, to normalize the failure, to be around other entrepreneurs that have experienced failure, then talk about it very freely, not as like a bankruptcy of your capacity as an entrepreneur, but as a rites of passage towards that success metric that you're trying to reach. I mean, we don't get a lot of opportunities to say, oh, man, that sucked or I I failed or I flunked out. That didn't work. And and we're going to need those. Atlanta still has one of the biggest wealth gaps in the nation. And Mm -hmm. so with such a strong base of entrepreneurship and history and civic involvement and leadership, how how do we get to this spot that we're in right now? I think that for Atlanta... And everything that is good about it, like you said, we're still the worst city in the country when it comes to income inequality. We're the worst city in the country when it comes to economic mobility. And you have to have a hard conversation about race because if you're not ready to, you're being intellectually disingenuous in your approach to move the needle. Like literally, there are no poor white neighborhoods in the city of Atlanta. There are no failing Latino schools in the city of Atlanta. So when we have the conversation about what we're doing, We're unapologetically focused on Black entrepreneurs, not because of some type of lofty ideal. No, I look at it like a capitalist would or an economist would. And if you've got 52% of your population and only 8 to 12% of that is participating in the economic growth of a major metropolitan area like Atlanta, then you've got a problem. That's a drag on the economy. And there you go. And so I think (laughs) that what we have to do and what we did before, we need to see see value in our own reflection. I think we we had a portion and a window of time, about a 20-year leap, where the only value-add proposition for success in our community was how far you could move away from it. Where we had this mass exodus from our traditional middle class, upper middle class, affluent neighborhoods to northern sides and northern shores where we thought that things were better. But we always had the script. We just forgot our lines. If you look at old Atlanta, I see your shirt, Atlanta influences everything. Shout out to Bame Joyner and the team. Shout out to Bame Joyner. But literally look at the west side. When I talked about Alonzo Herndon, where is his mansion? It's right there on Diamond Hill in Vine City. If you were to graduate from an AUC school and buy a house in Washington Park, Vine City or English Avenue, that's mm-hmm. where Lena Horn, that's where Gladys Knight, that's where Dr. King bought his first house. Maynard Jackson grew up in that. That's area. right. So like literally. Castles was around the corner. <laughs> Come on. All of it was right there. I remember growing up. I didn't even know where Lenox Mall was because South DeKalb Mall was enough for me. Literally Greenbrier, if you were from Southwest Atlanta, that was your mall. And we poured into the community. If you could actually take a camera and go back in time, you would see those neighborhoods in southwest Atlanta and south DeKalb County with the manicured yarns and the sidewalks and the thriving ecosystem of businesses up and down the roads. And literally everything that we talk about that we aspire to now, we had at one point in south DeKalb County. I had neighborhoods like Hidden Hills that were swim golf and tennis community or water's edge where black people would be water skiing. Say it, Jay Bailey. Homes, a 
around lakes, like, and the thing about growing up here is the best up thing is I have that as institutional memory. I know that it exists and I know that it can exist. And I know that we lost that for a while because I don't think we value what we had chasing after what we thought. thought. And so if we get back and that's part of the methodology around the Russell Center, yeah, let's make it nice enough where folks don't feel like they have to go to Buckhead to experience something nice. Yes, there are nice things in Buckhead, sure, but there are nice things on the West Side as well. And so when we start to see value in our own reflection again, I think the cost of perception in many ways has killed our community, that it looks wealthy, it looks rich. And one of those other statistics that's damning is that 71% of Black people in Atlanta, the Black Mecca, are liquid asset poor, where if they had a $2,000 or $3,000 emergency, they would not be able to satisfy it with their own resources. So poverty has expanded. It's not just that family in a shack over on the West Side that has holes in the roof. No. It's the four-side brick, five-bedroom house, two cars in the garage, but you don't have 2000 in the bank. And so we've got to really reimagine how we take control of our own narrative. If we've had almost 46 years of consecutive Black leadership in the city, how do we compel that leadership to pour back into the community? You mentioned Maynard Jackson growing up. When we were growing up as Maynard as our leader. Like literally Maynard took all the arrows, all the daggers, all the knives in the back to ensure that people got fair, equitable opportunity in the shot and economic prosperity. And to this date, that mayor created more black millionaires than any other mayor in history in the United States of America. He sure did. But when he left office, he had to go to another state to get a job. I know. People don't know that, Jay. He took all of that pain. He sacrificed and said, you know what, for the greater good, this is more important. And there's so many people that are generationally wealthy, have created generational companies based on his courage. So when we get it all boiled down, Monica, it is a conversation about courage. How courageous are we willing to be? How vulnerable are we willing to be to say that this must change? And on our watch, we have become this city of great prosperity, sure, But the other side of that coin is just not acceptable. And I think for too long, those of us that have thought that is enough, and we've disconnected ourselves from those that had not. And so how can you have, yes, companies like the Russell Organization, but then you go to the West Side and it's deplorable. That although you can have a million dollar home in Southwest Atlanta, does your kid go to your neighborhood school? That's a question we've got to ask. What other communities can I live in a $3 million home, but I don't feel comfortable sending my kid to the neighborhood school? That doesn't happen in Dunwoody. That doesn't happen in Sandy Springs. It doesn't happen in Buckhead. If I live in Buckhead, I love my public schools. Mm -hmm. These are the best in the city. We could have the same. And I think that, like you said, that cost of perception is too high for it. We've got to really get into the reality of building, reestablishing, not building, reestablishing institutions that once existed. But I think Atlanta, as I pull it all the way full circle, if there's any other city in the country, maybe even the planet that could get it right, I think Atlanta has the best shot without question. When we start to think about what entrepreneurs need to do to look at generational shift, generational wealth creation, one of the easiest and one of the first things is I know that there's no one answer to that question, right? But because of Atlanta and the things that we've created, your platform with WEI, what 
we do at the Russell Center, what they're doing now at the gathering spot, like each of the HBCUs has an entrepreneurial center. Find your tribe. I think traditionally it has been this thing. If I have an idea that it must stay singular and I'm going to go on this lonely journey by myself and all the data supports, that's just not true. You need the support networks. You need the relationships. If nothing else, from a qualitative standpoint, somebody just saying, I understand. And to be able to ask. So literally, if you're talking about the first step, in my opinion, of what entrepreneurs need to be thinking about, it is to tap into these networks, tap into these communities, tap into these ecosystems where you're not trying to do everything from scratch. Learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from the experiences of others. Take advantage of the help that's being offered in all of these program services and just other entrepreneurs that have gone down that road before. I use a slogan here at the center quite often. You know, why not? Uh, it's a little harder than that before for radio purposes. We won't use the whole slogan, but it's why not? I think that we need to elevate the possibility of things. And I think when I talked about you become what you behold, you ask most black people, how many of them know a person that runs a company that's doing more than 500 million in revenue? That ain't a lot. And so we start to think, do we even belong in those spaces? Could I even run a company that has 500 million in revenue? When I think about the gathering spot, why couldn't they be as big as Club Core and have clubs all over the world? I look at Pinky Cole. Could she be as big as McDonald's? Why not? Not. And so I think that we start looking at our ability to see ourselves at higher levels. I think some of that comes from that positive messaging that comes from a supportive and collaborative ecosystem. But I think that we need to start thinking like billion-dollar company owners, because as your shirt suggests, Atlanta influences everything. If you can create a thing of value for the marketplace in Atlanta, we are the ultimate multiplier and megaphone to get that message out all over the globe. And so we're seeing it happen in real time right now. And I think as entrepreneurs start thinking about the end in mind, I want them to go and think about and in their mind, visualize their highest level of success. And when they get there, double that. And so if it's two jobs, make it 10. If it's 10 jobs, make it 20. If it's 50, make it 100. And how do we scale companies that can serve the needs, add value to the marketplace, where we can effectively communicate that value to the marketplace and know that there is a marketplace out there that is vast that we could take advantage of. Every big company was once a medium-sized company, was yeah. once a small company, was once somebody's idea. And I just far too often think that I hear ideas and I even challenge myself. So this is not me pointing the finger at people and saying, this is what you should do. No, this is me saying even to myself, why not? Why couldn't we be the preeminent and the premier center for economic mobility in the United States or even maybe mm -hmm. the globe? Why not? And so, my friend, it's one that you can't do it on your own, but let's find the courage to dream a little bit bigger because somebody's whole life is depending upon your dream coming true. If your dream comes true, somebody's going to send their kid to college and be able to pay for it. If your dream comes true, somebody's actually going to be able to buy Christmas gifts and put them under the tree. If your dream comes true, somebody is actually going to be able to buy their first home and live a dignified life. 
but it's dependent upon those that are listening, that are entrepreneurs, seeing this vision, making that vision real, and scaling that vision to the point where we're creating opportunities for our community. And that's a huge piece of that because it's going to be our companies that train and employ and inject hope in our communities. And, and that's just a fact. Corporations can't create enough jobs to close the wealth gap. Corporations can't create enough jobs to end the poverty in our community. Corporations can't create enough jobs to close the opportunity gap. It's going to have to be from entrepreneurs that look like you and I that create these opportunities to start to whittle away at these deplorable statistics and not just beat the odds, but change the odds. I'm so happy you said find your tribe. I really try to stress that with all of the women that I work with. And I don't know if your tribe, for instance, it may not be a group of women entrepreneurs, but it's a group of people that have your same set of values and aspire to the same types of things that you do and want to see you win find your tribe. And I think that's critical even to this idea that you're talking about changing your own perception. Be around people that have a level of confidence in themselves and watch it become a force multiplier for Mm -hmm. your group. Five years from now, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I knew them when, because we're over here minting the next Coca-Cola. I'm sure you are too. The big, big takeaway for any underrepresented founder, whether you're a woman Black, Hispanic, an immigrant, anyone who's traditionally underrepresented in the global business community. The takeaway is to know that a critical part of your success is seeing success in yourself, looking in the mirror and having the sincere belief, the faith that what you see represents success, that you make a point not to limit your imagination on what success looks like. No matter what a mainstream narrative may say, the truth is that seeing success in ourselves goes a long, long way to closing these wealth gaps. This is why Atlanta's full circle conversation, providing a bridge from culture to policy to community through entrepreneurship, using entrepreneurship as a bridge that truly affects the wealth gap in a sustainable way. Thank you for listening to Why Atlanta, podcast sponsored and produced by the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiatives of Atlanta. The Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative is a 15-month incubator program funded by the City of Atlanta. We are the only municipally funded program of our kind in the nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of Why Atlanta. Why Atlanta is produced by Pixel Recess at pixelrecess.com. 